Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rulo University Medical Center. I'm Ronuk. And I'm Vivek. And in today's episode, we go through the details of how to approach um, a lung nodule when it's concerning for malignancy. And specifically, we're so excited to be able to welcome Dr. Greta Dahlberg to our show, um, who's a pulmonologist. And so she'll be able to share her perspectives about, you know, work up to concerns for malignancies, how she goes about getting a sample, et cetera. And I'm really excited to do this. You know, I, I know Greta pretty well, and she's a really good friend of mine, and she is truly a genius. And we're so lucky to have her on the show to explain to us what is a bronchoscopy, what is a navigational bronchoscopy, concepts of mediastinal staging. And those are so important to us as oncology fellows and for anybody who's interested in what happens after we find this lung nodule and it gets referred to medical oncology and to pulmonary. And how do we think about working this up? So just really excited for this episode. Yeah. And I, and I do want to point out listeners that, you know, we won't be necessarily going through the nuances of what to do with incidental lung nodules or what to do with nodules found on a a, a lung cancer screening CT in a patient with significant smoking history. We welcome you to check out our friends, the Curbsiders podcast Um, in episode 197. They go through all of this in extensive detail. They do it really, really well as they do with all things. Um, And instead, we're going to be focused focusing on what to do when we're actually concerned about the lesion being concerning for for malignancy um, and and carry on with that conversation. So feel free to check out their show, come back and check out ours, uh, and then you'll be a pro at working up that lung nodule. Um, So without further ado, let's move on to the show. So I'm so excited in our first episode of our lung cancer series to be able to welcome our guest, Dr. Greta Dahlberg, onto the show with us today. Hi, Greta. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. So Greta, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? And we always like to ask our guests one fun fact that they like to share about themselves as well. Yeah, of course. I'll start with a fun fact. Um, I have two shelter dogs. Um, One's named Tilly and one is named Finn. Uh, I got Tilly when I was an intern and I got Finn when I was a first year pulmonary fellow. Uh, So I've decided that getting new animals is my way for handling, uh, you know, the busiest times in my work career, my work stress. So that's the only way to do it. (laughs) I'm noticing a trend. Like, I feel like a lot of our recent guests have all have dogs and maybe this is the universe telling me that I need to do the same. I think it is. I, uh, you missed out though. I went to the shelter two weeks ago and the dogs were free, which is another reason I ended up with a second dog. We, we need to chat offline about how I can capitalize that the next time that happens. Um, but, but tell us a little bit about yourself. Like what, you know, what, what do you do? Where'd you go to school? Uh, all that kind of fun stuff. Of course, uh, undergraduate was at Washington university in St. Louis. And then I went to the university of Iowa, which is my home state for medical school. And then I came down to Vanderbilt for, internal medicine residency, and then stayed on for pulmonary critical care fellowship. Uh, Outside of the hospital, besides hanging out with my dogs and my fiance, I like to 
cook and uh, we like to make cocktails and hike when it's not 109 degrees outside like it was in Nashville today. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's kind of the short version. You know, outside the hospital, uh, me and my wife actually hang out with Greta and fiance and they, they really do make a, her fiance makes a mean margarita. I can tell you that. Yes, he does. I, I do love a good margarita, so we may have to exchange recipes offline as well. But, you know, I I am just delighted that you're here today. Um, and as we alluded to, this is the first of our episodes in our poem series. And so, you know, Vivek and I, when we were chatting about this episode, we realized there's a lot of like poem stuff that you guys help us with when we're, when we're working patients up for lung cancer that you know, at least I can speak for myself. I kind of just put a referral to pulmonology and then like something happens and then I get a biopsy result and the patient comes back. But we really wanted to take the time to understand what it's like from your perspective. And so if it's okay with you, we'd like to kind of go through some of that process today. And I actually have a case that's based off of one of my patients that I saw at Rouleau University Medical Center not too long ago when I was on call um, that I think is a perfect example that maybe we can use. How does that sound? That sounds great. Cool. So just to kind of lay the foundation. So this is the case uh, that I had seen of a 65-year-old male with a past medical history of asthma, hypertension, uh, tobacco use disorder, who came to the ER with severe abdominal pain. And as part of the workup, he had gone in a CT scan of his, of his abdomen and pelvis. And incidentally, there was noted to be a 1.5 centimeter spiculated nodule in the lung parenchyma. And that was kind of just picked up on the periphery of the abdomen pelvis CT. Um, his CT was otherwise just notable for diverticulitis, for which he was treated with antibiotics. And with regards to the lung nodule, he was completely asymptomatic. And so the ER doctor had told him just to follow up with his primary care doctor. His PCP being a student noting not only the patient's age, but also his uh, smoking history had ordered a dedicated CT scan of the chest with contrast to, to work up the speculated nodule. And what they found was that it was a right lower lobe nodule of approximately 1.6 centimeters in greatest diameter. And again, the patient is completely asymptomatic. So, you know, maybe what we can do is first talk a little bit about what do you guys think of when you hear 1.6 centimeters? Like when is it appropriate to call it a nodule? When is it a mass? Is there a cutoff for that value? Yeah. So the, the cutoff between nodule and mass is 30 millimeters or three centimeters. Uh, and the reason that cutoff was made is that once, once a lesion is greater than three centimeters, the likelihood that it's malignant is much higher. Uh, and so that's sort of why that, that distinction was made. So anything less than three centimeters is a nodule. Uh, technically, anything less than three millimeters is is a micronodule, but those are not the topic for today. Yeah, we can't get into the whole fungal infection business while we're. Uh, I'm assuming that's what micronodules are. I actually have no idea, but assuming that's what it is, and as we're talking about these larger lung nodules. Yeah. So anything from three to thirty millimeters is really where the where the money's at. And and you happen to to use the word malignant, and sometimes we see in these um, in these reports on CT scans, especially the the radiologist will make comments about benign appearing lung nodules or malignant appearing lung nodules. Could you kind of describe what it is that they're seeing that makes them believe that it is one over the other, and how does that kind of play into your clinical decision making about whether to pursue further workup for these nodules? 
Yeah, of course. Um, and before we dive into that, I did want to say one more thing about the case presentation. The It was perfect that a dedicated CT scan of the chest was obtained because we get referrals all the time for people who just have abdominal scans and the nodules in the lower lobe. And you're like, who knows what their mediastinum looks like if they have another nodule in the right upper lobe. Um, and so a dedicated CT scan of the chest by far and away is the first step. Um, and then the second step um, is old imaging, which is going to circle back to the answer to your question about benign versus malignant. So the number one most important thing in terms of defining a nodule radiographically is change over time, which makes having old imaging extremely important. Um, so if, if a nodule has not changed at all over the course of two years, the likelihood that that's benign is, is very high. Whereas if something's growing over time, even if it's growing slowly, if it's getting bigger, then that should definitely raise red flags that, that uh, this could be malignant. So the dynamic feature of the nodule is the most important. If we're just talking about kind of this patient with a one, one-time static, things that you would look for would be features that are consistent with benign nodules would be kind of smooth, well-circumscribed nodules. Calcification can actually indicate benign etiologies if it's diffusely calcified or has some, there's also something called popcorn calcification that looks exactly like it, like I, like it sounds. And then if there's like central calcification, if there's a calcification that's eccentric, then that is a little bit more concerning. We also look at nodules on soft tissue windows. And so if there's internal fat density within the nodule, that raises suspicion for hamartoma, which is a benign uh, etiology as well. So there's some things. And then one more thing, especially in our part of the country, if a nodule has, if there's a dominant, let's say 12 millimeter nodule with a bunch of small micro nodules around it, that it significantly raises sort of histoplasmosis or endemic fungi on your differential. So micronodules around the, the dominant nodule would also suggest benign etiologies. And, and Greta, you know, one of the things that we see a lot on reports is they report on a spiculated nodule. Can you, can you comment on what exactly that rings in your head? Yeah, so they've, they've studied this. The odds ratio for spiculation for malignant is about 2.5. It's high, but it's not crazy high. I think the thing to point out is that a speculation is a subjective thing, right? It takes a person to call it speculated. It's not a measurement that we take. And the other thing about speculation is that, you know, so I sort of started by saying it's just kind of little, it looks like little hairs projecting off of the nodule. And you will see nodules that I think 10 out of 10 people would call speculated, but then there's other ones that I think are more subjective, um, which is why it's not perfect. And that, that's something I never really knew is that, you know, when I looked at these reports and saw that it said a speculated nodule, you know, in, in my head, it's a lot easier to look at the read and then look at the image and then be like, oh yeah, that is speculated. But sometimes it's, it can be very subtle and that, you know, is, is important for us to know in, in oncology, when we see a patient and we see a speculated nodule that doesn't always equal cancer. And I think that's a really important thing that took me a really long time to really understand and really start to see the nuances of that. And it really happened when I started referring to people to pulmonary and talking to the attendings and the fellows about what exactly these features mean. So one of the other things that we typically do, and it's just the standard part of the workup and any new oncology fellow or, or even primary care providers, I highly recommend you do this. If you have a concerning nodule that's growing, or if you have a large nodule, and I'm going to ask Greta, you know, what, what her cutoffs are just in, in, in her experience, 
we often get a PET CT scan. So Greta, can you tell us a little bit about why we get a PET CT and the indications to get a PET CT when we find these incidental lung nodules? Yeah, that's uh, a very important question. I know the the audience here is is all across the country, so I'll, I'll make this helpful for everybody. Our, we practice a little bit differently here because of our high rates of histoplasmosis or endemic fungus. If you guys are practicing in a place that also has histo or blasto, then, then some of these things would apply to you too. But if let's say you're not in a place that has a lot of, a lot of that, then a PET CT is definitely part of the workup for. So according to the CHEST uh, 2013 guidelines, it's the next step for patients who have what we call low to intermediate probability, pretest probability of malignancy. If you look at a nodule and the patient has a significant smoking history, it's grown significantly over the past, let's say eight months, and you think the pretest probability of malignancy is high, the guidelines say that that patient, if they're an appropriate candidate, should go straight to surgery um, and not even obtain tissue diagnosis. And then they get sort of a staging PET scan either before or after that in their like surgical workup. But if we're talking about the group of patients where you think there's sort of intermediate probability and you're trying to further stratify them, a lot of those patients do get a PET scan. So, and then of course, if the nodule's hot, that should raise your concern. The reason that we specifically practice a little bit differently is that histoplasma is also hot on a PET scan and histoplasma causes mediastinal adenopathy that can be hot on a PET scan. And so uh, I would say in my personal practice, a PET scan is never the thing that makes me decide to biopsy or not biopsy. If something is growing on a PET on a CT and is cold on PET, we're still biopsying it because things like lipidic slow-growing adenos, those won't be hot carcinoids, those won't be hot. So if something's growing, it's getting a biopsy, um, whether it's whether it's hot on PET or not. But PET is helpful in terms of mediastinal staging and then also looking for distant sites of disease. And so I think people end up with them sort of regardless, but it doesn't really help me triage a biopsy decision. And, and you know, that's something that is really important for us to know. And I don't think I understood that until you just said that, is that really what we're looking at, the most one of the most important features is how quickly is this thing growing? Uh, Greta, is there a size cutoff that would say that, yeah, I, you know, regardless of what the pet shows, if it's, you know, uh, we should probably do a tissue sampling on this? The, the size by itself doesn't matter. Again, <laughs> I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it all goes back to growth over time. I would say the lower end of things, the, the smallest that, that I've personally gone after and that I've seen the attendings go after is eight millimeters. And that's a, that's a tough target. Um, but we can get eight millimeter targets if it's if there other things are working in our in our favor, and then you know anything above that we can go after. I would say things that are less than eight millimeters, we're probably going to watch those for three more months and make sure because it honestly less than eight millimeters, it's hard to even determine growth if somebody measured it at five millimeters and now it's six millimeters. That's probably within sort of the realm of of usual error when it comes to measuring from one scan to the next. So. That's sort of the lower end of the biopsy cutoff time, or sorry, size. Is there is there a uh, rate of growth that would also be taken into consideration? Like, I don't know, doubling over three months. Like, is there some sort of metric that you all use as well? Yeah. So there's something called the volume doubling time, and there's online calculators for this. And you just kind of plug in some of the the radiographic characteristics of the nodule, and it will spit out, you know, over. 37 days, the the volume of this nodule has doubled. 
very fast doubling time. So anything less than 20 days is extremely fast and actually is more suggestive of infectious or inflammatory etiologies. There are some malignancies, very rarely lung primaries. So sarcomas, lymphomas, um, testicular germ cell tumors that can have doubling times in that range. But typically if it's a super quick doubling time, less than 20 days, we're actually reassured by that. The average lung cancer volume doubling time is about 100 days. And then some indolent lipidic adenos can be up to a thousand days. I mean, those grow over years and years and years. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm adding a lot to my repertoire right now. You know, we have the PSA doubling time, which we'll talk about in future episodes, but now I've got this lung nodule doubling time that I didn't know existed. This is, this is very fascinating. And this is why that roughly three month interval between scans makes sense. If it takes about a hundred days to see significant growth. So, wow, things are really starting to click. Thank you. (laughs) And I, and I think that this leads very nicely into the next thing that we've been kind of pondering is um, how do you decide the best approach for biopsy? As in, you know, now you've identified, let's say something that is growing at, you know, doubled in, in, in a hundred days, and you're concerned about the possibility of malignancy, you know, and then us as our friendly oncologists are, you know, come knocking on your door and like, we need a biopsy of this thing, or at least we think we need a biopsy of this thing. Can you help us? So how do you decide if that's something that you as a pulmonologist are able to help us do or whether it would require the help of someone like IR? Yeah, great question. Um, So there's, as you sort of already pointed out, there's two primary methods of biopsy. There's transthoracic needle biopsy, which is done by interventional radiology. And then there's advanced bronchoscopy techniques, which there are so many, and there's so many different technologies coming out. And that's sort of beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about, but you can either go through the outside or through the inside is what it comes down to. And the decision about that is mostly made by a combination of patient preference. Some patients come with a preconceived notion uh, of what kind of procedure they want to have done. Um, Safety of the procedure schedule availability, you know, all these real life things come into it. But if you're talking about sort of what, what are the, the nuts and bolts of these procedures? So, so CT guided biopsy or transthoracic biopsy, um, they have an overall sensitivity of 90%. So it's a pretty good test. Um, that sensitivity is better if the nodule is greater than 1.5 centimeters. So up to like 94%, it's uh, in the 70% sensitivity range for, for anything less than that. The major risk of transthoracic needle biopsy is pneumothorax. If you think about it, you have to cross both layers of pleura to get to the nodule. So uh, 20 to 25% of patients have pneumothorax after that procedure, which is a good chunk. Um, Not all of those patients require a chest tube. So do we care about pneumothoraces that don't need a chest tube? Probably not, but but still that's that's a significant risk. A benefit of that procedure is that it's not typically done under general anesthesia. So if you have a patient who's high risk for general anesthesia, for whatever reason, that could be a better choice. Bronchoscopy, there's a few benefits of. I'm a little biased because I love doing these procedures. uh, So I always want patients to have a bronch. But we do take people to the OR under general anesthesia. They're fully sedated. They're actually paralyzed for the procedure because um, we have the respiratory motion and atelectasis really inhibit our ability to drive out to the nodules, particularly in the lower lobes, which are more prone to atelectasis. And and then we have multiple technologies that we can use in the bronchoscopy. So we have uh, EBUS that can go through a bronchoscope and identify a nodule in the periphery. And we have fluoroscopy that's there. We use rapid onsite evaluation. So a cytotech is looking at the, the specimen 
the IR approach uses that as well, but somebody's looking at the specimen immediately to tell us if it's, if it's adequate or not. So it's, it's great. And then as soon as you're done getting the sample from the nodule, you can stage their mediastinum with EBUS all in one procedure. So that's a benefit of the bronchoscopic technique. Whereas if you get a diagnosis with transthoracic needle biopsy, they may have to have a second procedure to stage their mediastinum. Major risks of bronchoscopy, the pneumothorax risk is much lower, only 1.5% of patients, less than half of those patients require chest tube. So, so it sounds like, you know, for the most part, if you can do the bronch, and obviously we have a biased opinion here, but it seems like if you can do the bronch, it's a very reasonable option if the patient is fit enough to undergo anesthesia because of the pneumothorax risk is so much lower. One of the things that, that I always wondered about, so, you know, we have this patient in, in our initial case presentation here who has asthma, uh, but doesn't seemingly this patient doesn't have, you know, severe emphysema or, or se- severe COPD or something like that. Many of our patients who have a 1.5 centimeter spiculated lung nodule like this patient have underlying severe emphysema, let's say. How does that affect the risk when undergoing something like a bronchoscopy? Yeah, it, it certainly raises the risk. Any any structural lung disease would raise the risk um, for pneumothorax. And then certainly if the nodule is right up next to a fissure and you have to cross, you know, the pleura and the fissure to get to it, then, then you're crossing sort of two layers of pleura. So those are the things we think about. But what I'll, I'll, I'll insert to, to avoid us all from being biased is that there, we don't have data on which of these is the best. But currently there is a multi-center trial going on called Veritas. Vanderbilt's a site for that, that is prospectively randomizing people to transthoracic biopsy versus navigational bronchoscopy. Uh, and we're about halfway through enrollment. So stay tuned for those results, because I think that will be helpful to, for us to, to make this decision down the line. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's so huge. Um, and one of the things that we're talking about, just to explain uh, to some of the listeners who may not be as familiar, when we're talking about mediastinal staging, if you refer back to one of our earlier episodes of the cancer of unknown origin, very different than cancer of unknown primary, which we talk about in that episode, we'd always talk about it's important to get a biopsy that will upstage the patient. So for example, you know, you can biopsy a lung nodule, but if there are lymph nodes in the mediastinum, that will give you nodal disease. And we talked about that TNM staging, T is how big it is. N is which lymph nodes are involved and how many lymph nodes are involved. And that's so critical. And, and again, what Greta is getting at is that this bronchoscopy, we have the ability to do this mediastinal staging or which lymph nodes, whether they're intrapulmonary or hyalur or mediastinal or subcarinal, all these you know regions in the area, which ones might have cancer in them. And that really helps us determine our treatment plans. So Greta, you know, one of the things that that we see often is you know, patients will have a lung nodule, let's say in the right lung, but then they'll have a contralateral, let's say left upper lobe lung nodule. When you're taking these patients to bronchoscopy, do you try to biopsy both sides of the lungs and look at both sides of the lungs? And, you know, how do you go about thinking about that? And let's say that you had a right lung nodule that was very hot on PET, that was highly avid on PET, but the left-sided nodule, let's say it wasn't as bright on PET, would you still go after it? Or how do you go about thinking about what you would do with that? Yeah, uh, super common scenario. So again, this is going to go back to how each nodule has behaved over time. I think if they're both growing, 
over time, we would certainly go after both. We would probably start with the nodule that we're more clinically concerned about. Maybe, like you said, if there's a difference on PET, maybe going after the the more avid nodule first, because the the primary goal of bronchoscopy is to get a tissue diagnosis. And so we, you know, we want to go straight to the target that we think is going to give us the highest yield. But we have gone after bilateral targets before or multiple nodules before, because two separate primaries at the same time you know, would, would obviously change management. So, so we would, we would go after that. And then the most important thing for that patient is really thorough mediastinal staging too, because trying to figure out, are these different things? Because if they are, that's probably better for the patient. If they're the same thing, then that's stage four disease. So that, which makes, has a huge impact on, on sort of treatment decisions. And, and Greta, you, you talked about how um, you, mediastinal staging is really important. Is that why, would you say it's fair to say that if you're doing, prior to a bronchoscopy, we should make sure you have a PET scan because that helps you determine which nodes to go after? Or is it really just, you're going to look for nodes of a certain size and biopsy them based on the size? How do you go about thinking about that? Yeah. So a PET scan would, would help us identify potentially which nodes would, could have malignant involvement, but we will biopsy anything that is greater than five millimeters. That's sort of the low end of the cutoff for lymph node biopsy and EBUS. If something's like six millimeters and is, um, there are certain ultrasound characteristics of lymph nodes that suggest benign. So if they're like really flat or kind of triangular and you can see a perfect hilum, that really suggests that that lymph node probably isn't involved. And so, but we'll biopsy anything greater than five millimeters. And the reason for that is because when you get lymph node spread uh, to the mediastinum, it usually starts as little micrometastases, and that is going to be below the sensitivity of CT scan or PET scan to pick that up. So uh, CT chest by itself, specificity for, for malignant involvement of, of lymph nodes is a flip of a coin. It's 50%, and the sensitivity is only 75%. A PET scan is only 80% sensitive, um, and I think that's because of kind of the micromets that can be involved uh, that we will get on a needle biopsy but won't see on PET scan. For EBUS, it's 93% sensitivity and 100% specificity for malignant involvement. We don't, it doesn't, the imaging doesn't really matter. Uh, it really matters what the nodes look like in there when we're, when we're seeing them on ultrasound. So Greta, before we get any further into the episode, I was, uh, you know, I think a, a big thing that we often hear about when we we read these uh, summaries and these reports from from our pulmonary colleagues is terms like EBUS and NAV bronch, and um, I, I mean, honestly, I didn't know that these things were any different in my head. They're like the same thing, but I'm sure that there are nuances that differentiate one from the other. Could you kind of define each of these terms and what their indications for use are and, and why that matters in terms of how you approach the patient? Um, so navigational bronchoscopy is sort of an umbrella term for a lot of different technologies. The, the two sort of main technologies that we have, and every institution will be a little bit different, but um, the two sort of main technologies currently are either an electromagnetic navigation technology or robotic bronchoscopy technology. So the electromagnetic uh, technology, the patient is laying on a board that has electromagnetic uh, sensing, and then they have sensors on their chest. And then the tip of our catheter that gets threaded through the bronchoscope is what is being sensed. The movement of that is being sensed. So prior to the procedure, we program a nodule from the patient's CT scan into the software, and then we create a virtual sort of pathway to the nodule. 
And then we use the electromagnetic sensor and we kind of feed it out into the airways. And then the screen will show us when we are, when we have taken the path that should get us to the nodule. And then we use in, we use procedure or fluoroscopy in the procedure suite. And most of the time you can see the nodule on fluoroscopy uh, to tell you that you're, the, you're in the uh, right area. And then the third thing that we use during a nav bronch is something called a rebus, <laughs> which is a form of ebus, which is an endobronchial ultrasound catheter that we can thread all the way out to the nodule. Um, and that has a, a nodule will have a specific ultrasound signature. And if we see that, we know we're in the right spot. And then we take our biopsies and get out. Robotic bronchoscopy is fairly similar, except you're not driving an actual bronchoscope. You just dock something to the patient's ET tube, and then you drive with like little control trackball. And that's uh, sort of coming uh, up the pipeline. We've only had a robot at Vanderbilt for about a year, but I would say from our uh, providers, that's that's going to become sort of the big thing uh, for diagnostic uh, bronchoscopy. Most of the time when we say EBIS, uh, we mean just the regular endobronchial ultrasound, which is a dedicated separate bronchoscope that has an ultrasound tip at the end of the scope. Um, and that lets us see mediastinal and hilar lymph nodes. We can, if somebody has a really central mass, we can see sort of hilar masses with it, but anything beyond like sort of the right, up, like right at the right upper lobe, anything kind of beyond the main airways, we can't get the scope too far. So it's mostly for kind of central mediastinal hilar pathology and lymph node staging. A lot of times these technologies are used together. We use navigational technology to get to the nodule and we finish the navigation and then we stage the mediastinum with EBIS. So Greta, earlier we talked about the differences between EBIS and navigational bronchoscopy and how really they're complementary techniques that the navigational bronchoscope helps us get to, let's say, more peripheral lesions and the central mediastinal staging, uh, the endobronchial ultrasound is a good method to do those things, to look at those lymph nodes and do the nodal staging and maybe go after some more central lesions. My, one of the things I wondered is what, when is a lesion, and I know this is opening a can of worms, but in a general sense is when is something not amenable to bronchoscopy? And, and are there general guidelines or, or is it, is it very complicated? I'm sure there's complexities to it, but could you give us just a basic overview? Yeah. So I think in general, I would say we will try to go after almost anything, uh, at least give it a shot. Contrary to popular belief, lesions in the periphery, so like the outer one third of the lung are actually easier um, because as the airways branch and get smaller, eventually an airway will dead end into that nodule. And then your tools can just go into where that dead ends into the nodule. If you think about sort of more proximal areas of the lung, so what we call the middle third, that's no man's land because anything in the central third is accessible with EBUS alone. Anything in the peripheral third is usually pretty accessible with navigation techniques, anything in the middle third. So if you think about, you have a smaller airway, but still not a, a really small airway and the nodules right next to it, we don't have great technology to be right there and then make a hard right angle turn. It's much easier when an airway dead ends into a nodule because we just drive all the way up into it. So if anything actually in the middle can be really tough because the airway that takes you the closest takes you right by it rather than right up to it. So those can be really challenging. The other reason the middle area is really challenging is there's bigger blood vessels. And so there's more risk for bleeding. 
Whereas with EBUS, where there's in the central area where there's even bigger blood vessels, you can see the blood vessels with your ultrasound and you can purposefully avoid them. So the middle third uh, is, is actually the, the hardest uh, place for us to go after. And then the other major consideration will still obviously do it, but anything in the lower lobes is a little bit more challenging because of the atelectasis that sets in throughout the procedure. Because everything we base the procedure on going after a nodule is based on a CT scan, which is done at ideally full ins inspiration. And then the patient is not holding full inspiration for the whole procedure. So there's something called CT to body divergence where the navigation software may tell you that it's over here, but now because there's so much atelectasis, it's in a lot different spot. And we get into to trouble getting some of that, uh, some of the lower lobe targets because of that. Greta, I, I think that this conversation has been absolutely phenomenal and so eye-opening. And, and I, this is a recurring theme on our show, but we walk away from every episode as the host, just learning so much more about the things that we deal with actually on a day-to-day -day basis. And so it's amazing to hear, you know, the perspective of approaching a lung nodule from, from the eyes of a, of a pulmonologist and from somebody that helps us with this workup of patients that have lung nodules. And so, you know, I, I just want to turn over the floor to you one more time. What are the important things that you want our listeners to take away from our discussion today? Yeah, well, I just want to reiterate and say thanks again for having me. This has been a great opportunity. Uh, I will echo that I think it's I think it's awesome to have these conversations. The the landscape of lung cancer is changing so rapidly as we're screening more patients and as our patients are getting sicker, um, living longer. So I think the the conversations are going to continue between our specialties, and I think the there's a growing role for the pulmonologists in sort of the management and surveillance of lung cancer with y'all's help. So I think it's going to be a really exciting place to be and exciting field to work in excited to continue the conversations. I think the takeaway points, there's a few of them. The easiest one is always get a CT scan of the chest if you don't have a complete CT scan. And please always get us old imaging, um, or at least start that process. I know sometimes it can be painful to get old imaging from other places, but imaging is is by far and away the number one thing we need to, to really assess and, and decide what our clinical gestalt is for, for pretest probability of malignancy. And then I think the other thing is, you know, we, we sort of talked about the role of a PET scan. I will say my practice is colored by practicing in a place of, of a lot of endemic fungus, but don't let ordering a PET scan sort of delay you talking to us about a nodule. It, as long as we have old other imaging, uh, we can we can sort of give an initial assessment and, and what we think should be the next best steps. And then, you know, again, with, with deciding in terms of where how to get your biopsy. Hopefully we'll have some data coming down the pipeline, some good retros or sorry, pro prospective data coming down the pipeline about how to make that decision. Um, but ultimately what we tell people to, to tell to talk to patients is just say, you know, there's two ways that we can biopsy this and, and let us kind of finish the conversation about the risks and benefits of, of how we go after these things. I, I think that is the most helpful thing that you said there at the end is that we have other specialists that are helping us. And what you said at the beginning that, you know, we need to have these conversations more often. And I've learned so much from this. And, you know, when we see these patients, it's really important to say, hey, you're going to have a, a lung doctor who's going to talk to you about some of the risks and the benefits as we send them to you guys to, to think about what is a lesion that would be amenable to biopsy or what might be a little bit of a higher risk. So thanks so much, Greta, for, for being on the show and, and really, you know, couldn't thank you more. We've learned so much. 
Of course. Thanks again for having me, you guys. I really appreciate it. I have nothing else to add to that other than also just to say thank you. So anybody have any last thoughts? Why does Dan Housrath never show up to this? You know, he's, he's, he's an attending now and he just decides that he's too cool for school. Yeah. Yeah. Last time it was all wine tasting galore and now it's globetrotting. So, uh, you know, it is what it is, but we're, we're so thankful that, that Greta was able to, to join us today just to keep our listeners from having to hear just me and Via go back and forth. Cause that, that could, that could be awful. <laughs> that wouldn't be good. Um, so, all right, listeners. Well, thank you for joining us on another episode of the fellow on call until next time. We'll see you later. See you later. Thanks guys.